Welcome to this week's episode of our mini-series, Border Surveillance, I'm Edin Omanovic. The EU was founded as a peace project after World War II in a continent where conquest, oppression, a war were just essentially what happened on a daily basis. And on that basis, who can say it's failed? The EU is home to some of the world's most prosperous, safe and free societies ever known. But it's also in a fight for its very identity. The migration crisis of 2015 brutally exposed its divisions, indifference to and active involvement in severe abuses against some of the world's most marginalised people. People who have been forced to flee their countries, their homes, their families, made it to Europe and then been subjected to unlawful and shameful acts of state violence. As with everything, technology plays a very important role here. On one hand, if you're fleeing, sometimes a phone is one of the most important things that you have. A lifeline if you're trying to find a safe route, find out if your family is okay, or just trying to look at funny videos of something. But on the other hand, they've also become a target for border police. And there are entire systems of surveillance being put in place across Europe to monitor folk who are on the move. To understand what's happened, there's really no one better to speak to than people who are out there trying to directly help those on the move and document the state violence that is being inflicted upon them by European border police. The Border Violence Monitoring Network is a collection of activists and associations, mainly based in Greece and the Balkans. I was lucky enough to get a chance to speak to Natalie and Sergio about their work, the situation on Europe's borders, which is probably among the most urgent rights issues in Europe today, and the role that technology and particularly surveillance plays. Now, we filmed this just before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and as of today, more than two million Ukrainians have been forced to flee their homes, including to some of the same countries that have, for years, enforced some of the most brutal acts against other migrants. While the reception across Europe has been overwhelmingly positive, with acts of kindness, one of the few good things that have come from the Ukrainian invasion, uh, the key here is to make sure that this kind of treatment is sustainable and that we get systemic change to treat all migrants with dignity and give with protection and with the kindness that they deserve. And there's no one better to underline why this is so important than Sergio and Natalie. Enjoy. Natalie and Sergio, thank you so much for um, joining today. I've been following a lot of your work uh, for a couple of years now. Um, so I'm really grateful that you found the time this morning. Um, would it be possible maybe just to introduce some of your work? Um, what, what kind of inspired you to get involved and what kind of things you're working on at the moment? First of all, thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, really happy to be here. Um, and yeah, I mean, in, in general, we are both here because we are part of the Border Violence Monitoring Network, um, which is a network of uh, more or less 15 grassroots organizations along the so-called Balkan route. So we have partners, uh, actually we, uh, me, I am representing Chosur, the partner in Turkey, which is the furthest east. <laughs> and, um, and then we have partners uh, in Greece, in Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia, Italy. Um, yeah, and others joining also. Um, so basically what we are doing is each of us uh, as the organization that they are, are doing some kind of um, solidarity support work with people on the move um, and then as a network um, we are 
we have decided to to join forces to uh, document border violence and and by now even also internal violence and and other issues that people on the move face uh, across Europe's borders. And just to quickly introduce Josur, which is the organization I'm working for and I co-founded. Uh, we are originally, I am from Austria, and uh, we founded Josur there in 2015, working on some integration uh, projects. But uh, in, in March 2020, when the situation between the, the Greek and Turkish um, land border escalated and thousands of people were stranded there for a month. Uh, me and two other volunteers went there uh, to provide some emergency relief, uh, planning to stay there just for a few weeks. Um, and while working there, realized that there's a huge gap, both in support for, for survivors of pushbacks um, and people on the move in, in the area, but also um, that there's basically no monitoring happening of, of the border um, from the Turkish side. So we ended up staying there. This has been two years now. Um, we have two teams. One is located in Istanbul, where I am based as well. Uh, and then there's the second one in a city called Edirne in the tri-border area between Greece, Bulgaria and Turkey. Um, and in both locations, we provide basic support for, for pushback survivors. Um, which means short-term accommodation so they can rest and recover after their pushback closed because unfortunately most people are, that are pushed back are pushed back semi-naked or even completely naked. Um, and then food and uh, whatever else is, is needed, like, uh, I don't know, um, hygiene products. Um, and unfortunately, more and more, we have to also uh, provide first aid and, and organize medical care because the violence keeps increasing. Um, and then... In both locations, we offer anybody, we support the opportunity to give a testimony of their pushback, which we then uh, upload to the Border Violence Monitoring Network database and uh, use for advocacy work that we do as the network as well. Great, thanks, Dad. And Jasur, what, what, what's the story behind the name? Uh, yeah, <laughs> so basically I, I co-founded it together with a Syrian refugee. Um, so we chose an Arabic name. Uh, which means bridges, uh, and it was originally reflecting to kind of like bridge the, the gap um, of refugees that had just arrived and uh, needed to, you know, uh, build a new life, establish a new uh, social support network and so on, but at the same time also bridge language barriers, which uh, are often there, um, and cultural differences. Uh, and then moving to Turkey, it was interesting because uh, both in Turkish and in Farsi, which is what we learned after we came here, <laughs> there's the word jasur, it's a, a slightly pronounced differently, uh, it means brave. So <laughs> we're lucky that, that the other meaning is also a fitting one, I guess. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, Sergio? Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Edin and Privacy International, for the invitation. Uh, I'm so happy as well as uh, Natalie for being here and to be part of the, of the podcast. Uh, I'm in Spain right now, where the organization Ampar Nonin Kitchen is from. Um, it is based here in some region in Spain because it was founded by some um, person from Asturias, this region in Spain. And um, right now we are in five different places. We are uh, as well in Spain, but not of Africa, in Ceuta, that is like the south or north uh, door of the European Union in terms of the of the borders 
and we are as well in Balkans and Greece. We are in Bosnia and in Serbia, and we are in, in the city of Patras in Greece. Mainly we were starting the project in Serbia and the story around the project was uh, a bit funny because there were uh, some people uh, in Athens doing some kind of uh, activists looking for how was the situation and there were some rumors of people in Belgrade in the old barracks where uh, thousands of people were gathering in the winter of 2016-17 so they decided to go to Belgrade and to see with their eyes the real situation and it was so unbelievable how the people were living in the in the barracks in the and what was the conditions of these people so they just decided to start cooking one one night they bought three uh, big uh, pans and uh, two stoves and they start cooking for one night just to try to support these people with some food and then they decide to stay and one night after the other they start cooking and cooking and at some point they realized they will need to stay there because the situation was awful. Um, but after that, the, the, like the authorities in Belgrade, they demolished the, the barracks because they, were, uh, they wanted to build some uh, luxury uh, housing in the area. So all these people were moved to some camps in, in Serbia, but the majority went to the north, to the border with Croatia. So the people there, we were starting the organization, they decided to move there. So when we were in, in seat in this small city town in the border with Croatia, we start as well supporting people with food and clothes and uh, some kind of hygiene and medical treatment. And then we start listening the people who were coming back from Croatia. And we start listening about these stories of these deportations or illegal deportation, what we call pushbacks. And then we, we start realizing that something was happening and was systematic that the Croatian authorities were pushing back people trying to reach Europe, Italy, Slovenia, other countries, Austria, and they were coming back in uh, awful conditions. Natalie mentioned that some of them, I think the situation in, in the Balkans and Turkey, Greece is the same. They were coming back with anything. The authorities removed the clothes, the phones, money, they took money, they beat them up. So they were coming without anything and also injured. So we realized it was the moment to start some kind of movement or project or political action to make testimony of this incident. So uh, as Natalie uh, mentioned, we start with uh, together with uh, another organization, grassroots organization in SID, Rigardu from Germany. We start collecting the testimonies uh, at the beginning, very naive way, but then we start developing uh, really uh, uh, professional methodology to collect these testimonies and as Natalie mentioned to make some kind of advocacy and awareness in the future so that was uh, how the network BBM border virus monitoring network was born in this region in seat and then more and more uh, partners join forces in the network we have today that is uh, huge and we are doing uh, an amazing job definitely and, and you mentioned the camps in 2016, and Natalie, I think you said Jasur was starting in 2015. What, what was the kind of context behind then for like a non-European audience around about that time? Um, and what was the kind of political reaction by the EU and the individual EU member states? And has much really changed since then? I mean, that was like six years ago now, unbelievably. 
almost seven. Seven, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, in general, the, the, the context is that um, 2015, several years after the, the war started in Syria, um, there was quite a big increase in, in refugees arriving in Europe. Um, why 2015 not before is because of course it takes some time for people to actually like get further and most of the people in the beginning of the war um didn't think it would last that long so they just moved to the first were internally displaced then maybe moved across the border to turkey to lebanon um and were kind of waiting for the war to end and then when it became clear the war wouldn't end um people were trying to establish a life. And then I think there, it, it's important to know the context in Turkey um, that uh, asylum as we know it in, in Europe doesn't exist here because when Turkey signed the Geneva Conventions, uh, they put a geographical limitation in place, meaning that only refugees fleeing Europe can apply for asylum as it's, uh, as it's described in the Geneva Conventions in Turkey. Uh, when the Syrian war started, there was basically no concept of, of international protection in Turkey. And then in response to, to, the, to the large number of Syrians um, residing in Turkey already, basically, uh, the Turkish government made some new um, like, uh, some amendments to, to residency law, which uh, allowed Syrians to obtain temporary international protection. But there's a huge, huge difference between asylum as it is actually meant to be, <laughs> according to the Geneva Conventions, and the rights that people who obtain temporary protection in Turkey um, have. So, so then, uh, partly because of this reason, and partly because people realized the war would not end anytime soon, um, lots of them decided to, to uh, find a place where they can actually build a new life, which is really not possible if you don't have permanent residency here. Um, so then people started uh, going to Greece in, in really, really big numbers. Um, there were daily arrivals of, of, I don't know, even dozens or sometimes some days, hundreds of boats on the Greek islands. Um, and uh, eventually uh, a large number of people um, were stranded uh, in Idomini, uh, which is at the, at the northern borders of, of the Greek mainland. Um, and I don't know how detailed we should go into this, but basically um, all along the Balkans, uh, people were kind of piling up in the sense that there were thousands of them stranded at different, I don't know, bus stops, uh, train stations and so on. Um, and then especially in Budapest uh, in Hungary, um where the government basically said to austria and germany and so on which were some like especially germany was the main destination for many syrians because there was already a community there um basically said like we will just let these people cross uh we cannot like keep them anymore um and then there was in summer 2015 end of summer 2015 this decision by the austrian and german governments uh, to open the borders and let people cross um and in general in, in this it was i think it's often referred to as the summer of solidarity where i i still remember in in austria across different um groups in in the population everybody was helping in one way or another it was it was really awkward if you if you didn't do anything to help these people pass through um, or arrive in Austria some of them decided to stay in Austria um, and 
and that was a couple of months maybe where it was a um kind of like it was kind of a state of emergency but but in a in a sense that was really really positive and optimistic and and uh, empowering i think like the the feeling that people from all different um parts of the society come together simply to help other people uh was was really motivating and inspiring i think and it's also, I think, therefore, no surprise that most of the organizations that make up BVMN were started in that time or, or actually developed out of initiatives that formed spontaneously at that time. Um, and then, unfortunately, very quickly, the, the sentiment to, towards the, the um, refugees uh, coming to or through Europe turned um, and the borders were closed, shut, which uh, I realized <laughs> after starting working here at Border Violence stuff that I actually witnessed that myself. I was working at that time, I was at different borders, just doing whatever was possible to do. Um, and I was at the Hungarian-Serbian border on the Hungarian side when we heard that there are 3,000 people on the other side of the border so we sent a scout team three cars with each two people and a few tents and, and some food um to the serbian side and as i was the last of the three cars crossing the border and as soon as we had crossed to serbia a woman came running after the car uh, so i stopped asking her what she wants and she's like what what just happened i'm a journalist for the Süddeutsche Zeitung, this german newspaper what just happened i was like what do you mean and she's like look behind you <laughs> so i looked behind me and, and i saw soldiers like pulling this huge like concrete wall across the highway literally closing the border um after that there was still a few weeks of where people were able to um instead of going through hungary to austria and then to germany uh, go through uh, through croatia uh, but basically at that point the the decision was made i think to to close the the Balkan route um, and what that meant is exactly what we are working on now people didn't stop coming but it meant that border guards started violently preventing people from entering and even removing people from the territory uh, in a pushback as as is what what we are calling this collective expulsion since then a lot has changed um, basically in in the beginning this was happening at only specific borders and not as systematic as now and now it has actually become like in the context of greece i'm talking about the pushback machinery usually because by now it has become so coordinated and there's so many resources going into it um and so many actors involved in it that it's it's really like it, it is a systematic thing and it's actually i think a hallmark of the whole border regime by now um and at the same time it kept expanding across borders so uh, by now there are pushbacks from austria to slovenia as sergio already mentioned there are pushbacks from france to italy there are pushbacks like all across europe basically happening um so it's not individual countries that took that decision it's it's a strategy of the uh, of europe as a whole to keep people out and deter them from coming 
And I think it kind of back then coincided with like a great weaponization of this issue by various like political forces across Europe. Um, you saw how they done that, I think, really effectively. But I mean, the facts are that vast majority of displaced people and people on the move remain internally displaced within the countries of origin and in poorer countries as well. So even though like, you know, when I was in the UK at the time, um, we had like these like images of people in lines just essentially being depicted as invading Europe, whereas like the facts were that people were, vast majority of people still remained in Lebanon, for example. Again, going back to then, there was this kind of push by the European Union and I think Germany in particular to make a deal with the surrounding states and particularly with Turkey. Um, could you maybe explain a little bit more about what that deal was and what it led to? So basically, I think this deal was the biggest mistake Europe could have made. And uh, that's what became obvious in 2020 and since. <laughs> um, basically, the, the deal was that Turkey um, would receive money and some other incentives like uh, an ease of, of, of travel, like visa-free travel and um, an ex expansion of the uh, economic uh, trading zone between Europe and Turkey and so on, uh, in exchange for keeping people in Turkey and preventing them from uh, going to European Union territory. Um, that in and of itself is highly problematic because, as I mentioned already, there is no asylum in Turkey. Um, at the same time, it's highly problematic because, of course, this gives a big um, leverage to, to Turkey uh, to basically blackmail the EU. Um, and I don't think it's as easy as saying that's exactly what happened in 2020. What also happened before is that the EU did not keep up its part of the deal, um, only uh, transferred a part of the money at the same time, not move in, in any way on the other promises made. Um, but basically, I think it, it was foreseeable from the start that this is exactly what would happen. And it has happened since exactly what we've seen since last summer uh, with the border between Poland and Belarus happened before also with Morocco, where Sergio probably can tell you more about this. Um, and uh, I find it shocking that that there's basically no discussion in, in European political field about maybe we should switch tactics. <laughs> maybe we should not keep paying authoritarian neighbors to uh, keep people out. Um, I don't know. Yeah, uh, to be honest, I, I yeah. I find it to be honest, the, I, I always feel like the, the goal of Europe, the only response Europe has to the fact that people have always migrated and will keep migrating, whether that's forced migration or not, the only response Europe has is keep people out at any cost. And uh, this is an unrealistic and honestly also naive idea that, that you can achieve that, and especially by paying off other countries. It's kind of short term as well, because what, what's the inevitable consequence of maintaining a border region of authoritarian dictators that you're empowering just for the short term goal of, you know, keeping people in place? Um, you mentioned Morocco. Sergio, I don't know if you want to just explain what happened in Morocco. I think it was only a few months ago now. Yeah, I was thinking exactly about that, about this border regime that uh, somehow started in 2000, 
16 when the closing of the borders natalie mentioned like how she experienced the the reality in austria and hungary and uh, i was thinking this eu turkey deal it's quite similar of uh, the, the situation in uh, in um, north africa in ceuta and melilla that are these autonomous cities uh, that is spanish soil but is in african territory and is uh, part of uh, morocco so at some uh, point the Spanish government and through European fundings are paying Morocco to keep the uh, people on the move coming to, to Europe. So they are like um, reinforcing the, the measures in the, in the border through Morocco and Spain, uh, but they are also using this as a leverage. Like uh, you mentioned, it was last year in May, 2021, when the Moroccan government opened the door and 20,000 people from Morocco just enter in the um, in the Spanish soil in this small autonomous city of Ceuta. That was crazy how they make this political movement to try to push a bit uh, the Spanish government or also the European Union around these uh, economical uh, issues that they have also with Argelia. But yeah, it was more or less the same. If you uh, give this power to some authoritarian regimes like Morocco or Turkey, they then get this power to push you uh, on how they open and close the doors for people to come. So I think it's more or less the same story. Definitely. I, I mean, I think, I mean, I read that was in particular was like related to a decision regarding Western Sahara as well. So there's all these kind of like, internal issue, anything that you want to push at the EU, you know that you've got that kind of stick and essentially you know that they'll bow down to whatever you want. Originally, my background is in international development and uh, and it's not just what we've described now that like direct neighbors of the EU um, are, uh, like that the EU is trying to make deals with, with its direct neighbors. It goes much, much further than that. By now, almost all the development aid or the development cooperation between Europe and Africa, uh, also countries much further south in Africa, um, is tied to certain uh, conditions regarding migration and keeping people like from migrating or passing through countries. Um, and it started actually already like the, also with the direct neighbors. It started long before the EU-Turkey deal with Libya. Um, in, sometimes it's bilateral deals between, for example, Italy and Libya. Sometimes it's the EU as a whole. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, this is hi highly problematic on so many levels. Where it's like, um, of course, what's happening now when when Turkey, when Morocco, when uh, Belarus decide to play with people's lives as a political pawn, uh, that is obviously a problematic, but also. Uh, tying tying aid, which should actually be reparation for colonization, um, <laughs> tying aid to to conditions regarding migration is also really problematic. We're able to speak to another journalist, Giacomo, um, who's working on sub-Saharan Africa and particularly Niger, um, and it's just wild how you know you've seen these kind of deals all the way like that far south, but also with that comes the facilitation of like surveillance equipment and drones all the way from Niger up to Belarus. And um, that seems to be the priority at the moment, unfortunately. 
Um, so yeah, going back to the effect of these decisions that did happen for people that are on the move, what did that essentially mean to them? And what was the subsequent treatment of them by authorities inside the European Union? Like when you're at the border regions, um, are they, you, you mentioned earlier, Natalie, the treatment you think has got more systematic. Is that, do you think, mean worse for them? Do you describe some of the incidents that you've seen? Or? To be honest, <laughs> since we've been working on this, I keep thinking, wow, it can't get any worse. And it keeps getting worse basically every week. Two weeks ago, I was I was at the border between at on the Turkish side of the of the border with Greece because we were doing a research project regarding quantitative estimations of locals in the in the villages immediately at the border about how many people they see returned every day. Um, it is something that happens every day in the hundreds or if not thousands. Um, and while we were there, 21 people died within three days that we were there. Uh, they froze to death um, and half of them were found almost naked. Uh, it was minus nine degrees during the night. And the, the thing is that when people are pushed back since 2020, um, they are not taken to the Turkish side of the river anymore. They are either driven until like ferried until the middle of the river and then told to jump into the water or they are dropped, abandoned on, on these small islands, which is basically just uh, sandbanks with some trees in the middle of the river. Um, and so people are wet. They don't have any clothes or hardly any clothes. And it was minus nine degrees. Um, so yeah, uh, to be honest, like it has it has become so much worse that I can't even describe it. Like like it's it's incredibly traumatic and and it's 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 really has has huge impact for for people not just immediately due to the physical violence they have but also what what it does to their psychology, what it does to the psychology of people working. With. I personally have secondary trauma on the level that I cannot take testimonies anymore because hearing those stories again and again and again just gets too much at some point. Um, and then much less imagining living that because people don't have a choice. So they keep trying. It's not like they try once, they get pushed back. They're like, oh shit, now I'm gonna go home. They cannot. So basically the average number of pushbacks people have that we take testimonies of now is at least 10 pushbacks. I, I see this happen every time. Like we take a testimony of someone who was pushed back for the first time, they say, I will never do this again. I cannot do this again. I will try to stay here in Turkey and uh, like survive here. And then maybe two months later, three months later, five months later, they see they have no other choice because they cannot build a life here. Um, and then they are forced to try again. And then it leads to some people like that. The highest amount I've heard was a guy who had 65 pushbacks. In general, a pushback means uh, that people who are crossing or have just crossed the border um, are not registered as they should be, are not given their right to apply for asylum if that's what they wish. They are not even like, yeah, not in no way formally registered that they have ever arrived. They are simply taken and then expelled back across the border that they came from. So this is what it was initially. Initially that meant in the usually militarized zones right at the border, people who had just arrived were stopped and then told to go back or beaten across the border. 
But what has happened since then, and this is why I'm calling it a pushback machinery, not just pushbacks anymore, uh, in Greece, what happens is that people all over the country, uh, on the mainland now, people all over the country are apprehended, whether they have uh, residence permits or not. There were so many cases we had where people actually were in the asylum process, were waiting for their asylum interview, and were taken from camps even to be brought at the to the border with Turkey and then expelled. Um, so that's actually not a pushback according to the original definition of pushback. That's a that's a collective expulsion. Um, and what happens in Greece? It's it's incredibly systematic in the sense that people are brought through different jurisdictions, sometimes five, six different jurisdictions, handed over from one group of police to another, from one police station to another. In the end, when they reach the, the uh, militarized zone, they are kept in incommunicado detention sites, which are sometimes just like warehouse-like buildings. Um, sometimes even they describe uh, being kept in the open with just some kind of tin roof and some fence around it. They are usually like this process of a pushback from further inside the mainland usually lasts between two and four or five days because um, initially it was only the group that was apprehended that was pushed back, but by now it's so systematized that they basically make sure to gather lots of people. So the average number of, of people we have in a group that's pushed back to Turkey from Greece at the moment is around 80. Um, sometimes there are groups of 200 people. Um, and so they are they are kept in detention, in detention, even if it's four or five days of detention, they don't get water, they don't get food, they don't have access to medical care. They often have their medicine that they have with them taken from them. Usually everything they have is taken from them, including clothes. Um, we had this case recently where a person who is HIV positive had eight months of medication with them. The Greek police took it all. Um, and also they take the documents, their passports, whatever. We've had six cases where people have actually already obtained asylum in Austria, Germany, and Belgium, and then went to Greece either to visit relatives that had just arrived there or to look for missing relatives, um, and then were apprehended, had their documents from Austria, from Germany, from Belgium stolen by police, and were brought to, to Turkey. Um, we currently have this, uh, phenomenon of uh, Cubans, which are able to fly visa-free to Serbia. And then some of them are told uh, or attempt themselves to, to cross the land borders to Greece uh, in the hopes of then from EU territory in Greece being able to fly to Spain, which is their final destination. Um, so they had never been to Turkey before. And as soon as they enter Greece, the police takes them to the border with Turkey through this whole process that I described, and then pushes them back. And in this case, it's not even a pushback because they pushing back <laughs> requires that they had been in Turkey before. They had never been. We currently have 65 Cubans in, in Turkey and they all started in groups of uh, two or three or, or even alone. This by itself, this expulsion without a formal procedure is completely illegal according to national law, EU law and international law. But more than that, there is a huge level of violence and, and other um, inhumane treatment involved. Basically, there is systematic torture involved. In Greece, we have this annual torture report where we just gather like the, the information we get from all the testimonies we take. In 2020, in Greece, 89% of testimonies described at least one form of torture 
in detention or during the pushback, usually both. Um, and then this number has increased even more in 2021. By now it's 98% of all groups that are pushed back that describe having been exposed to at least one form of torture. And it's so indiscriminate that even children, women, pregnant women, old people, disabled people, um, everybody is being beaten. Everybody has their clothes taken from them in each detention site, whether official police station or warehouse style detention, people are forced to undress completely. Sometimes they are given some clothes back, sometimes not. Um, they are strip searched. Women are searched by men. Um, children are sometimes searched, uh, uh, like very brisked properly. Um, uh, yeah, and then the pushback itself, I would say by now almost always involves violence in all the borders. Which type of violence varies a bit whether people are kept in detention first or not is varies. So for example, we have half the testimonies we take up from Bulgaria actually, half are from Greece. In Bulgaria, it's still as it used to be in Greece that small groups are apprehended at the border and taken back without detention usually, but 50% of the testimonies from Bulgaria include police dog attacks. So they come back with really bad bite marks, half of them. Um, yeah, and this is the land borders. <laughs> in Greece, you also have the sea. Um, and what changed there is that people who, like for, for a long time, the, the Greek Coast Guard basically just prevented people from entering Greek waters in the sense that they would stop the, the boats, the dinghies that people are crossing in, um, they would disable the, the engine uh, or take it away, um, whatever. Sometimes also even um, uh, puncture holes into into the inflatable sections of the of the boats um, and then just create waves to to push them back across the the border and into Turkish uh, waters and wait for the Turkish Coast Guard to pick them up. Um, what changed since 2020 is that the Greek Coast Guard not only does this anymore but also uh, uses life rafts uh, to to put people on even people who already arrived on Greek islands set foot on Greek territory. Sometimes we had this testimony where a group was already inside a camp talking to UNHCR staff to ask for asylum and then still was taken back out to sea, abandoned in these life rafts. And again, it's the same procedure that people are beaten, people are robbed of all their belongings and then set basically adrift in these life rafts that they cannot, they cannot steer. Uh, and it's usually completely overcrowded. And not only this, but we have had several testimonies and just yesterday, uh, an investigative report was published that proves um, that this is happening, that the Hellenic Coast Guard also sometimes does not only set people adrift on these life rafts, but simply throw them into the sea without any boats, any rafts, and people die. People die both on the land borders and on the sea. Yeah, I and mean, the evidence of that investigation was, I mean, uh, there's no denying it essentially was there, even though I think the governments in the region, they still have this facade of saying that these things don't exist, because as you say, it is supposedly illegal when you um, enter a country, you are supposedly allowed to apply for asylum, that's the whole thing that makes kind of pushbacks um, illegal, but it's such, it's so systematic, it's, it's like almost kind of laughable 
to deny it at this stage. I would like to add, because Natalie mentioned this investigation last October that showed how the Croatian authorities were pushing back, they were recorded. Uh, we collect a lot of testimonies from people um, who were pushed back from uh, Croatia by the Croatian authorities, and they told us that the, the Croatian authorities are like uh, developing new strategies, for example, on beating, trying to beat in some areas of the body that doesn't make any any sign. So then they they try to prevent this picture image of people with uh, wounds or or marks in the body to be shown as a proof. So they are trying to develop these new strategies. And I think last um, uh, week on the end of February, there was released some um, uh, some copy of a directive from uh, some police station in Croatia, Bajoko uh, border. The deputy commander sent like a directive to the subordinates mainly saying that you need to be more careful when you are carrying the pushbacks because we need to be aware that the like the uh, media civil society activists they are trying to get some footage some uh, proofs to uh, start some cases so i will say that they got some kind of um, uh, attention to this uh, activity that the people is doing but they are trying to find uh, some ways to uh, still doing what they are doing that, uh, as Natalie mentioned, is clearly systematic. And um, at least where we are in the Croatian border with uh, Bosnia and Serbia, uh, what we are uh, witnessing is practically, practically the same. The people is ripped of clothes and belongings, money, phones, that is super important for people in the move, but they are also suffering like sexual abuses, sexual harassment. I, I was listening the, the stories uh, from Natalie, from the testimonies, and I was really listening the same testimonies we are taking in the in the Croatian border, where people is taking in like a detention for many hours without clothes. They also put them in the vans, like the police vans, where they uh, take the people to the uh, Bosnian or Serbian border, and they put like the uh, air conditioning really low so the people is freezing inside the vans when they are driving for hours till the border uh, and they are suffering. We have a lot of testimonies where people is suffering sexual abuses. They are uh, forced to undress and simulate that they are having sex with other members of the, of the uh, group they are traveling. So it's a terrible story and I think it's the same uh, from Croatian border to the Turkey border. The thing is, it's, it's ridiculous that they still deny, but they just simply call it Turkish fake news. <laughs> they use this conflict. Uh, and of course, then they use it against anybody who is reporting about it. Like I am, uh, I have two criminal cases in Greece against me because of this work that I'm doing. Uh, and in one of them, they accuse Josur and three other organizations of forming a criminal network. And then they accuse us of espionage, violation of state secrets and facilitation of illegal entry, which is smuggling without profit. Um, so, so they use this argument. Uh, this is also like why espionage, just because we are in Turkey uh, reporting about what Greece is doing. But it's so indiscriminate. Like uh, an actual person working for the EU border guard was caught up in that yes. at one point, weren't they? <laughs> yes, <laughs> but they still denied. <laughs> so you mentioned like some some of the your experiences of being criminalized 
is that um Sergio, maybe I don't know if you know, is that like a systematic thing for people working on frontline and solidarity work? We we were mentioning this image of thousands of people uh coming to Europe, invading Europe, and this image of people being uh held by some locals in different places. Because in the beginning, before they close the border, they start with this regime, with this securitization of the border, adding more and more stuff like walls. Uh, fences, uh, like um, like the securitization with the drones and some technological uh, stuff. People were more receptive. They were uh, helping all these people from, uh, Natalie mentioned, the majority were from Syria, but also from Kosovo, from Afghanistan, and people were really uh, willing to help. But after the years developed, uh, we have witnessing that the people, local people, are becoming to be um, not scary, but uh, feeling that the, the um, solidarity they can provide can be also uh, criminalized by the authorities. It's not just the international solidarity, people coming from different places of Europe to help these people to support, but also the locals. I have heard some stories that the people in the Croatian border, they really pretend not uh, to know about this pushback that are happening, even if they can see from their houses, but they, they are so afraid of say anything because they can also be uh, threatened by the authorities, even if in their own country. So I, I can see this criminalization being broader than just international organizations trying to support, but also with the locals that is uh, making even more difficult for the people on the move to try to uh, reach Europe because they just, they don't find just the, uh, the border. They find that the people is forced to not help because they are uh, afraid of even to give a, give a blanket <laughs> can, can be seen as facilitating uh, human trafficking or smuggling that our volunteers in the field, in different places, uh, they have like a lot of problems with the authorities just by providing some blankets or food or uh, health uh, treatments, they can be accused of facilitating or being uh, part of a smuggling network just to provide some basic support to these people in the move. That report you mentioned in October, um, again, just undeniable, the evidence that was produced that there was a systematic campaign of pushbacks. It's available if you um, search for lighthouse reports and they managed essentially they put um cameras used for hunting and drones and got footage of the pushbacks in action um, and it's published across media in europe and that's available um, online and the most critical was that the reaction by the authorities the croatian authorities was to blame or to punish just three officers but it was something punctual not systematic it was like some uh, putrid apples, but in the basket, but not <laughs> something in general, but it's not true. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a systematic reality. My problem with how these cases are usually um, reported on or presented in the public is that the focus is on the criminalization of solidarity. But the only reason this is happening is because migration itself and migrants themselves are criminalized. Um, it's because Europe, not just Europe, actually, I mean, it, this is a global issue, like pushbacks is a global issue. Um, it, it happens in Central America, it happens in Southeast Asia, it happens everywhere. Um, and, uh, and, 
and the main thing uh, that allows for this even is is the the narrative that uh, migration is a security threat and that allows for criminalization of migrants themselves and this is what usually is completely underreported that there are probably tens of thousands of migrants in prison without proper trials or with ridiculous trials with ridiculously long sentences because they were on the boat and maybe we were the ones who had a satellite phone so the authorities decided you must be the smuggler um, and and things like that there was this case in greece last year where a father lost his son uh, because they're both capsized off a greek island and the son drowned and then the authorities asked him to come to the morgue identify the body of his six-year-old son and right after he identified him they put him in prison and charged him with uh, what's it called um uh, endangerment of, of his own son's life because they were like you should, you wouldn't have had to go on the boat um so and then he received what 52 years in prison for that um and so the focus is often on the criminalization of solidarity because uh, people who work in solidarity networks have the network have the privilege also to to have lawyers to have uh, access to media have the the position to be able to speak out about all this in our case uh, that i mentioned already um we are 35 people 33 of us are um, members of four different ngos and two of us are people on the move who are the only ones who were already imprisoned um and who are the only ones who cannot publicly speak about this because they are still in greece they are hoping to still get asylum in europe and uh, they they do not have the privilege to to speak about all this and um so so it's and on one hand it's that on the other hand yes it's, it's so wide within bvmn more than half of our uh, member organizations are currently being criminalized in many different ways some of it is lawsuits like ours like or criminal criminal uh, investigations and then um trials but there's also a lot a lot of other forms of repression and actually there's a really interesting report some of our western balkan members published i think in 2020 or 2020 i'm, I'm not sure it's called shrinking spaces and it describes exactly that the problem and the and the effect of of this criminalization it's that the space for civil society to be active and engage is shrinking constantly due to this repression um and then of course the the space for for migrants to to actually like um, exist <laughs> is shrinking um and i think it's a huge threat to our democracy to our freedom and i'm not talking about us as activists or as uh, people working in solidarity but in general because it wants this process of dehumanizing a certain group and then criminalizing them and then criminalizing those supporting them directly once this process is started it keeps extending and we see this already in the last two years more and more journalists reporting about this have been arrested or had experienced some form of repression more and more lawyers uh, representing either people on the move or people like us who are criminalized because supporting people on the move um, lawyers are being criminalized uh, doctors are being criminalized if they if they treat people um, and and I don't think there's there's any stopping to this, and I don't think that the majority of, of European citizens are aware of this threat of basically, um, yeah, us due to the, the fear of, of migration, uh, basically 
giving up all the values that, for example, the European Union was founded on and that we are so proud of, we are, we are destroying it. It's such a good point. I guess um, kind of underlying all of that is this issue of racism and neocolonialism and how big a part it has to play, not just in terms of the policies, but also within our reporting of it and what eventually makes it to the headlines as well. Recently, I know this is a, maybe a provocative comparison, but I'm, I'm so sure like I, I, I gave up hope that in the next few years things will get better because they are continuously getting so much worse that I'm certain that in the next, I don't know, five years, it, we will only see escalation after escalation. But I am sure that one day in the, maybe in a few decades, maybe in a hundred years, I don't know, but one day we will look back on this border regime and we will look at it and talk about it as we are now talking about slavery system. We are, I think it's really exactly the same. It's this capitalist, colonialist, racist uh, reasoning <laughs> that allows for this to happen. I mean, I remember when in 2015, it was kind of being talked about as like a challenge to the EU itself in terms of whether we control migration. But I, th I think it, was a, it is the challenge to the EU itself in terms of sticking to its values, you know, and it's failed. And I think that was the bigger war i lost eventually yeah, i also really i also really see the possibility that the eu will collapse in the discussion around how to handle this topic because there are these two blocks um between between countries but also within countries between different parties and i don't see in any way that there's any progress in in um, finding a joint response um and I, I do think the way that this has been prioritized, that this subject has been prioritized for the past six, seven years, if we can't find a joint response on this question, it can be the end of the EU even. Kind of just take us a wee bit back. Um, the kind of general narrative is that um, people that are providing frontline support are inadvertently or actively driving not just migration, but also the trade in facilitating migration. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, we as in the kitchen, we are working in the, in the border, but we are not working with people in camps. That uh, is something um, when we start this conversation, we are talking about camps and about what uh, developed uh, in the 2016 when the border were closing and all these people were stopped from coming to Europe uh, on an easy way. And then many people were moved to camps that should have been uh, temporary, but in the end they were uh, becoming detention centers for many people. So the people we are working in the different regions is people that be nice to be inside a camp because they know that uh, being in a camp may will make the the journey slower and it will take a lot of time due to this bureaucratic process that climbing for asylum is so painful for for many people. So all the testimonies we collect is from people who are trying to do the journey on their own. If we, we are not there, they're going to stop coming. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, definitely. I think that's the point. I think Jasur have a great kind of explainer on that as well. Um, that was reading recently, just because there's no data to back that up whatsoever. This narrative, it came originally from the, from the search and rescue field again. Um, and first of all, 
I think it's a disgusting discourse because I, I remember, I don't know exactly when, maybe two, three, four years ago, I don't know, uh, there was the a headline for exactly an article discussing this in a German newspaper. The headline read, should we save them or not? What does that mean? What does it mean if we don't? We let people drown. This is like, this is the one thing that that is still, um, I think like the one international law that is still widely respected globally is the maritime law, <laughs> which means that whoever is in distress, there's a duty to rescue them. And whatever happens afterwards is another discussion, but should we save them or not? What kind of, what kind of a question is that? And this was not a right-wing newspaper. This was a mainstream newspaper, widely, widely read. Um, so it has, we have gotten very far in this discourse about like, and, and like imagine, just imagine that there's a, a boat of white people with European passports in distress and somebody goes, should we save them or not? I'm not sure. Like that would never happen. <laughs> um, and, and there's also like, there's not only no data backing up that this narrative of the pull factor created by NGOs, whether now in search and rescue or in the support work BBMN organizations do, um, not only is there no data backing that, that claim up, but there's also a lot of data that actually shows that in the months where all the search and rescue ships, for example, in the Central Met were, um, <laughs> thanks to repression and criminalization, not able to, to operate, uh, there was absolutely no um, decrease in, in people attempting. And to be honest, if you think about it logically, like especially in the search and rescue context where this argument most often is cited, um, someone who leaves from somewhere, let's say somewhere in Sub-Sahara sub, uh, sub Africa, um, will not go through the whole hell of Libya if they don't have a reason to other than, ah, but then the NGOs rescue me in the med. That it, like, it doesn't make any sense. People like, yeah, anyways. Um, and, and honestly, uh, it's, it's the same thing like, like no matter how much violence is used in pushbacks, people still keep trying. It's not about convenience. Like all that NGOs, like like BVMN organizations can do is provide some kind of convenience, like some kind of basic thing, like here you have a blanket so you don't freeze to death in the forest. Uh, here you have some food so you don't starve. Um, or maybe uh, some Band-Aid for, for an injury. I don't know. That's basically all we can do. Um, and people who keep attempting to cross after being tortured will not have the, the like, like, like if, if you take torture, if you take the risk to, to actually drown uh, or see it happen and then still try again, this is not because somebody will give you a blanket and some food afterwards. <laughs> this is because you have no other choice. We cannot... Um forget that the, the solidarity we were mentioning is not just international or local, it's also within the, pe the, the people in the move. So even if we non in kitchen or collective aid or other partners of the network, we are not in the border providing some blankets or some clothes, the, 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 the people in the move, they, they are solidarity with other people in the move that when they are pushed back and then they come back without anything, they help each other. They provide food, clothes, blankets, if they don't have anything. So even if we are not there, they are gonna be able to continue with the journey because sometimes we forget that these people are 
making the journey for months, years, even, and they start in Pakistan, Afghanistan, sub-Saharan countries. And we providing some support in the border with Croatia is just a patch that we, we just try to provide some support. Also, the most important is to denounce and to, to, to carry this uh, awareness or advocacy work we are doing within the network. But really to, to be there as a, uh, supporters is like a drop in a glass of water. We we really we are not giving them the the real support because they provide within within themselves. And about funds, uh, as I mentioned before, is one of the key elements. On the one hand, is the key element for people on the move to make the journey. And we sometimes forget that we right now in our cities we depend on. GPS just to go to do the shopping or <laughs> to go to visit somebody because it's so important for us in this century. So just imagine for people on the move who need to try the best way to reach some um, uh, familiars in, in Europe. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the response of the authorities is to focus on the on the phones, on the one hand to uh, make it, it more difficult this, this travel, but also to take it as a leverage to push on these smuggling uh, networks that they are uh, trying to figure out and to, uh, as uh, we mentioned about this GPS phone, but also every everyone with a phone can be accused of being a smuggler within the group because he or she has a phone to guide the others through a forest, for example. So that is why they focus on these, on these phones, they destroy, and they try to make it uh, more difficult, this, this uh, navigation for people on the move, thinking that this is gonna like uh, make them going back to Pakistan or Afghanistan after years of traveling. But uh, in the reality, it's, it's not uh, like that. Even if they destroy their phones, they are keeping trying to, to reach Europe a huge reason probably for authorities immediately when apprehending people taking the phones is to make it impossible to uh, take like collect footage on and evidence on on what they are then doing to them um, and at the same time we know uh, that in several locations at least uh, authorities take the phones and then sell them on the black market um, that, that's, a, that's actually a, an interesting discussion in general. How do they finance pushbacks? Because it is an illegal practice and it does require a lot of resources that they cannot put in an official budget. <laughs> so um, of course they take all the cash that people have on them and they take all the phones, they make money out of this. And at least uh, I know this for, for Greece um, and Sergio already uh, yesterday we discussed this a bit, uh, said the same in, in Croatia, right? Um, yeah, and then uh, the, the question of what else do they do with the phones before they sell it is something that we can't really know because this is another issue in this whole um, context that we are working in, that there is by now basically zero transparency about what is happening and who is doing what. And we are trying a lot as a network to uh, like file freedom of information requests with Frontex, the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, or with other different authorities. And this used to work quite well until a few years ago. But over the last two years, Frontex basically and other authorities are just becoming increasingly intransparent, refuse to give out any basic information even. 
um, and we cannot be sure what what exactly they do. Uh, for sure, they when they decide to criminalize someone, <laughs> they they go through the phones and then try to find any kind of evidence that that they were I don't know doing whatever. Uh, I personally know because I was um, in touch with this one. Uh, he was Palestinian um here in turkey and and then he had some health issues and i was organizing medical care for him and then i tried to reach him and for five days or something he was consistently online but didn't respond uh, and i thought that's quite weird and then a few weeks later he reached out to me from another number saying uh, he tried to get to greece they took his phone and he's back in turkey now um and so basically what i'm sure happened is that like then he told me which day he was uh, arrested apprehended in, in greece and so on so basically these five days that he was consistently online the actually the police had his phone so they apparently took the phone from him and then put it must have put it on charge um and consistently had it had it on for like five days and i'm talking about on whatsapp he was online consistently for five days this number um i i don't know what why exactly they do that what exactly they they what kind of data they try to get but i also know that uh the one of the two people i mentioned who are in our criminal case he's an afghan unaccompanied afghan minor who uh was initially like he, he, he arrived on, on, on the island of Lesbos in Greece after eight, 38 hours uh, at sea um, after the Greek Coast Guard repeatedly attempted to push him back. Um, eventually, because of his actions, he and his group made it to Lesbos. What he did was that he started filming uh, like or live streaming actually on social media, live streaming from this boat, showing the, boat, uh, the, the hole the Greek Coast Guard had made into into the boat showing that the engine was destroyed showing how the greek coast guard ships were passing by creating waves um, in order to push them back to turkey um, eventually a turkish frontex liaison officer <laughs> saw this video showed it to the german frontex team that he was on board with uh, on a ship nearby uh, and then the german frontex officers decided to intervene this is a very rare occurrence <laughs> sometimes they do still intervene and help people instead of supporting pushbacks um so in in this case uh, they sent a speedboat to actually um uh, pull the dinghy to to shore and two days after he arrived on lesbos um undercover police came to to the camp and were saying they would register people for the for the camp of moria which never happens uh, at the coast they were in a quarantine camp at that time there were many other people who had been there for weeks and were not registered yet <laughs> and they were only interested in registering the people from his boat which was a group a mixed group of uh, half of them were afghans the other half was from the democratic uh, from the democratic republic of congo they only wanted to register the afghans um and then when they were asking them the, the questions of like, during the registration process, they were asking also for the make and model of their phones, which is not a normal question to ask. Um, and he was uh, smart enough to basically like not show his phone, not have it with him because he assumed already that it might be connected. Um, and still a month later, when all the others from his group were transferred to the camp, from this quarantine camp to the actual camp, 
uh, he disappeared. And then it took me a few weeks researching among the Afghan community to find out what happened. And he was imprisoned, um, 16 years old at that time. Uh, and for six months, um, no, in the end, sorry, seven months, he was imprisoned without charges. Uh, a few months after, I think uh, it must have been four months after he was imprisoned, we found out why, but we immediately, of course, organized lawyers and tried to understand what are they charging him with. And all they told the lawyers for a month, they didn't even give access to the lawyers. After a month, they allowed the lawyer inside. And then all they told the lawyer was he's a threat to public security, but there are no charges against him. Uh, and then they published this press release about the criminal case against all of us, uh, which then made us understand that there were no charges because the investigation was still ongoing. Um, anyways, uh, so in this case, it was exactly that. They, they used, they, they found out that he was the one who was live streaming uh, this pushback, basically. And afterwards, uh, we connected him to journalists to 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 speak about it and we published his testimony of course um so that is what what uh, made him end up in prison for seven months he's out now but completely destroyed like he they made him on purpose addicted to to um really heavy uh like basically to benzos um he's been on withdrawal the first weeks after he came out and since uh, this is more than a year now that he came out, um, he is unable to leave his room because he he got so used to being confined in a tiny space in prison that he can't handle getting out of the house anymore. So they're basically kind of looking for um, evidence of people documenting crimes. Basically, they charged him on the same charges as us, um, which is espionage and violation of state secrets. The only, like, we still don't have access to the file after one, more than one and a half years of this ongoing case against us. Our lawyers still don't have access to the, to the actual file, but some of it was leaked from police to media. Um, and in that uh, letter that was leaked um, from the Lesbos uh, Police Department to the headquarters in Athens, basically they are saying we were sharing uh, state secrets and the only thing us or other organizations involved were sharing is for example footage of Coast Guard performing pushbacks. I think something important that uh, you Natalie mentioned is about this lack of transparency from the authorities from Frontex. We don't know really what they are doing with the phones they are taking. What we know from, from our experience in the field, from the testimonies we collect, uh, apart besides this uh, black market, Natalie mentioned that uh, it's also happening in both sides of the Balkans. Uh, and we collect some testimonies of people telling that they were able to buy again the, the phone that the authorities took from them. So it was like a loop. You take the phone, put it in a black market, uh, you sell to the, to the people on the move and then take again. So it's a crazy story. But what we know from these testimonies we are collecting is that people is aware that the, the, the police is going to catch them at some point and they are going to uh, look inside the phones. As Natalie mentioned, the, the, the authorities will force these people to unlock the, the phone even if they don't want. That is, they also use the phones as a leverage to, to diminish the people on the move. They open the phones, they look through social media, they uh, use it like a, something to, to uh, laugh on the people, to make mo mocking them, and to, to also 
use this uh, psychological violence or not physical but uh, mental violence so as we know from some testimonies is that people is aware of that so some strategies they adapt is try to remove like personal information or uh, pictures from the phones trying to min diminish these encounters with authorities when they try to dip into the phones but at the same time when some authorities find that some phones look like new they don't have some uh, pictures or information they get suspicious and start making questions why your phone doesn't have any picture then they try to connect uh, trying to find some contacts within the the phone uh, trying to find the, the smuggler within the group who is the smuggler who has the contact with them with the smuggler that is again natalie mentioned that the, the most important is that that we don't have really evidence of uh, pushbacks apart from this investigation like from lighthouse report uh it's true that we don't have any evidence because the uh, authorities take the phones and delete image or they broke the phones even if they are uh, not the expensive one that they put in the black market the cheapest one they just broke the glasses they charging units they make it uh not uh, working again uh but sometimes people in the move is able to hide some phones or to take some footage or to maybe record on live so sometimes we got some evidence from them that is super important to carry some advocacy or awareness or uh, some other legal strategies to try to to bring this to the public attention but it's like like so often we don't uh, get this this evidence because the the systematic practice of destroying or deleting or taking an, uh, the phones is making it impossible to have this evidence that in the end is the the biggest weapon or uh, tool we have for our work yeah and i i think that was a super important point you you brought up i uh, completely forgot to mention it, about uh, how they use social media sometimes just for dehumanizing and, and ridiculing people and um, half of our ground team here is themselves people on the move who who once tried many times and then eventually gave up and decided to document this instead as much as they can and then we joined forces because we were doing the same thing and um, so one of them uh, in his last pushback from Greece uh, he like after he was back in Turkey his sister when he finally got a new phone and had contact to his family again um, his sister told him that in this time that he was disappeared like that he didn't respond uh, someone uh, from his Facebook profile sent messages to her it, this guy saying uh, I'm a this and this it was a Greek name uh, I'm a doctor or whatever and uh, sending nudes sending nudes of, of himself to her to his sister um, and there are yeah there are many many uh, cases like this where I don't know if it, it's police or if they just give it to some of their friends. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that happens. That happens a lot. Yeah. The, the disconnect here is just wild between what international law should say about this kind of surveillance that's supposed to come with proportionality and only be done when it's necessary, be targeted, have things like a judge um, reviewing it and authorizing it and have forms of redress. To then just what's actually happening which is just give us your phone um, and then we're going to do whatever we want with it or break it generally yeah i mean there's also like lots of these companies around that sell 
technology specifically for this purpose and um, targeted at, for example, people on the move and some of the technology we had a look at a couple of years ago, kind of run through the uh, technicalities of how it works. And they're still able to do things like um, collect data that's been deleted off it, collect photos and videos that have been deleted off the advice, but that still kind of remain accessible to some of this technology. So um, that's out there as well. You, you mentioned earlier, Natalie, that um, in the registration process, they're asking for phones. Are they asking for, uh, is it common like to collect biometric data of people when they're being registered as well? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's not usually the, the, the case that they ask for phone uh, make and model in registration. This was just in this case. Um, but yeah, usually, I, I mean, this is official EU policy that uh, people who apply for asylum are registered in a European wide database, Eurodac. Um, and uh, this, so yeah, like this, we need to differentiate here between, between like this is not happening during pushbacks usually. Um, there is, uh, at least in our context here, um, we, we never had testimonies that said that they were first registered and then uh, pushed back. But uh, for everybody who applies for asylum, this is the norm, like fingerprinting, uh, name, birth date, whatever, uh, is all being registered and then shared European-wide. Um, and there are many implications with that, of course, also. Um, and I, I mean, in general, it's it's very clear that in this trend of like collecting information from from asylum seekers uh, and migrants is uh, increasing consistently as well. Um, and there's huge lobbying behind it, uh, both in the in from tech companies that uh, sell border technology, like also border surveillance technology. On the Greek border, there's thermal cameras, movement detectors. Sound cannons as well. Is the so sound cannons, yes, sound cannons. <laughs> and drones, of course, uh, are very much used also on the Croatian and the recently Austrian border. Um, and yeah, there's a lot, a lot of technology that's involved in this. And there's a lot of lobbying behind uh, this increase in securitization, both at the borders themselves and when registering um, asylum seekers. Uh, there's really, uh, and there's, by the way, also some information about this uh, that came through freedom of information requests at Frontex um, about <laughs> how, how expensive the dinners with these lobby groups are. Um, and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's really concerning, to be honest. And, and I mean, basically what we or groups like us are trying to do is lobby for the rights of people on the move. And we cannot compete with that level of um, yeah, capital that they have. And, and especially like as the processes and decisions are being decided behind closed doors, you have industry days where these companies will go and kind of pitch essentially the techniques. And you just don't know how much of that is actually driving the policy making and the decisions and the narratives that come from government, because in the background, you have these very well financed lobbying technology companies who are pushing for that. Yeah, but with these data, if you are kind of lucky enough to be registered and to make it through the asylum process, um, a group called Statewatch have uh, done some great research on the databases that uh, are available to EU border guards and to EU member states and efforts to essentially centralize them and make them accessible across various EU countries and EU agencies so that 
sometime in the next few years, for example, you'll have police who are just able to scan people's fingerprints and then get a whole background on people's data that they have on there. Let's encourage everyone to check that out. One point that's also interesting when it comes to this technology question is where is it not being used but would be useful? For example, uh, there is no database of missing people, like no joint European database of missing people or deaths. Um, we have this here because there's so, such an increase of people dying at the, at the Greek-Turkish borders that we had to start this project uh, trying to track uh, missing people. So what we do is at the border province in Turkey, there's four different districts. We have to go to the courthouse in each one of them to report people missing uh, because they don't even have a centralized system where this one province has an overview of which body is found where. Um, same in all the other countries I'm aware of. Um, so it's, it's also, I think, a really, really interesting point where is technology not used, um, but could be helpful. Or to document some of the crimes that are happening. Of course. <laughs> yes. um, are you seeing kind of any other, what you might kind of widely call surveillance techniques that the border guards or uh, police in um, the regions that you're working are using? For example, like wiretapping that's been used in courts against this is for me, uh, or for us here in Turkey, this is a huge issue because the Turkish authorities, uh, and this is, I mean, a direct result of, of European externalization policy that Turkey, by the way, also conducts pushbacks from Turkey to Syria, from Turkey to Iran, um, even more brutal than most of the EU borders. Um, and, and the thing is that within Turkey, uh, the Turkish government is basically using Instagram, TikTok, and so on, to find uh, people who are not registered in the country um, and detain and deport or also illegally expel them. Um, that's a huge, huge, huge thing here. And it's, this, it's also happening in other, in other countries in Europe, but it's not as systematic as here. And then in our criminal case, uh, the only reason I'm involved in this criminal case is because uh, phones were tapped, yes. Um, and uh, and the same happened in, in many other cases. And there were other like certain rescue cases. Um, one of my colleagues is involved in one of those from a previous organization she's worked for, uh, where their ship was bugged. They had for a few months. They had uh, yeah. They they were taping all the conversations in the ship. Um, and then this case is also this is the Juventa case where uh, it turned out uh, almost a year ago I think that even the lawyers and the journalists working with this group, like journalists reporting about it and lawyers representing them were, had their phones tapped for eight months or something, um, which is completely illegal. And uh, yeah, I mean, in, I, like in any other context, I don't think that that would fly <laughs> with the general public. <laughs> um, like if, the, if it was about any other, subject other than people working with migrants <laughs> this would not be acceptable at all you don't know if you've accessed any of the um, kind of detention camps that the eu has invested in recently they're kind of subject to some pretty orwellian um, new surveillance techniques so kind of machine learning powered analytics that um run through the cameras so they're just constantly watching people and would essentially flag up any abnormal behavior so you have to kind of make sure that 
you walk in ways that aren't gonna raise any red flags i have not because i mean most of like where the most technology like this is being used is in greece and i cannot enter the country <laughs> but um but yeah i i mean yeah totally it's complete uh, completely surveilled as i haven't seen it myself but i know people who have um and it's basically yeah, living under under big big brother, <laughs> and uh, there's no privacy. There's no privacy in the M's anyways. Um, yeah, and and what I find also really interesting in in this context is how uh, how technology is also used to evade responsibility and accountability. Because Frontex, for example, this is in the Croatian context especially. Our Frontex is saying uh, we are not present in, at the Croatian borders other than the official border crossings, but. Uh, Frontex has uh, provided Croatian police with uh, lots of technological equipment that allows them to surveil the border. Uh, the footage is live streamed um, to the Frontex headquarters in Warsaw in Poland, and from there to the Croatian border guard stations. So whenever there's allegations about pushbacks in Croatia, Frontex is like, oh, we, we are not present there. Um, but they are facilitating it by live streaming footage from the border to the border guard stations in Croatia. The kind of other thing that became um, very evident, one of the things that we did manage to get through freedom of information requests was um, documents of training activities that EU agencies were providing to agencies in Northern Africa and the Balkans. And, um, and it was exactly kind of techniques that you mentioned. So how to monitor social media, uh, how to do wiretapping, um, how to look through phones using specific software that's designed for that. So there's very much like a policy behind that to externalize these kind of surveillance practices that are used and developed in um, rich countries to essentially the neighboring ones around Europe. In Croatia, in our case, like in regarding technology, the most common issues with the drones like we collect a lot of testimonies of people telling us that when they are trying to uh, reach Croatia, sometimes they just listen to the noise of the of the drones. So at that moment, they they realize that maybe in thirty minutes, one hour, the authorities they are gonna show up and push them back. So it's uh, like a daily reality that the the people on the move trying to cross through. Uh, the North Balkans is experiencing the, the presence of this surveillance technology as drones, night vision, uh, or like, uh, any, any, any sort of uh, high technology to, to surveil that, as Natalie mentioned, is not present Frontex in the border, but they are really present because they are sending the information. And not even high technology, it's like one of the projects that they're working on is providing capacity to non-EU countries who want to be EU members to develop databases to be able to enroll people in biometric um, systems that are then shared with EU countries. Uh, so they want to make them like interoperable with EU standards, but essentially that just means that they want access to um, the data of people who are coming to those countries also. In your kind of opinion, what, what is the long-term strategy here? for the big EU countries and the European Union itself, or even is there one? No, I don't think there is any. There's a complete lack of political vision and leadership uh, in how to solve the, the... It's not even a question for me, I think. I mean, it, migration has always been part of human history. 
And it only became a problem after we decided to establish nation states and have borders and then make it increasingly selective who can cross those borders and, uh, and how. And um, I think also in the context of globalization, uh, it's completely illogical why all the goods, all the information, all I don't know what can, can travel globally but people cannot, or certain people can, but everybody else cannot. Um, and I, I mean, currently we are talking about what 85 million uh, displaced people worldwide, which is absolutely nothing compared to, for example, only the population of Europe. If we would just simply, like without making a fuss about it, just distribute those 85 million people uh, equally or kind of equally <laughs> across Europe. Um, nobody would probably even notice or have a problem with it. But after decades of this um, securitization threat, uh, that, that's the only reason why, uh, why this is such a huge, or like probably currently the biggest challenge apart from the pandemic. Um, and, uh, and honestly, it's only 85 million now, but with climate change and so on, where we're also not acting and finding any pro like really proper solutions, uh in a few decades it will be billions and honestly i i really feel like currently it's decision time it's decision time to to decide do we do we find or can we find a way and do we want to find a way to um, live in solidarity globally where everybody can survive and hopefully also thrive or do we want to have completely isolated uh, places where uh, maybe a small elite can have a halfway decent life and everybody else is suffering or like slowly dying? Um, and and I, I know this sounds super dramatic, but uh, this is really where we're headed in the next 50 to 100 years, maybe. Um, and, and I think this is the big, big, big challenge that that we have to solve that like climate change plus um how do we treat borders in the future uh because already now even if we would now suddenly decide to uh, find solutions to climate change <laughs> uh, that actually are implemented also <laughs> even then the effects of of what has already been done to the to the ecosystem would drive many more people out and that would lead to, like in general, also lead to, to more conflict, to more violent conflict, to more forcefully displaced people because of these conflicts, but also because of direct effects from climate change, not these indirects only. So I, I am hopeful <laughs> that maybe we can find a solution, but, um, but I also currently don't see it at all. So I guess that is one of the ironies that you kind of touched upon is that the wealth of the EU has been built on free movement of people, um, and, but the price of that, uh, unfortunately, recently has been that other countries have to stop that. And you have these like horrible examples of communities, for example, sub-Saharan Africa that have traditionally migrated across what we would call borders, uh, having to just all of a sudden stop because the EU has come in and said, uh, actually, this is now a border zone and we're going to support the border authorities in enforcing and stopping nomadic communities from going across them. Um, it's just a wild state of affairs. Um, Sajjar, are you as optimistic? 
No. <laughs> and I was remembering now when Natalie was talking about when the new pack on migration was presented on 2020. And the, the meaning behind the new pack was like, okay, the quota system was a failure. And Skinas talking about the non-existence of uh, European Union was the, the main reason. And they were trying to develop a more solidary system within the, the European Union. But the reality was that the the, the tool for that will be like if some members don't want to receive migrants, they can contribute economically, adding money to the <laughs> surveillance or, or, or all the all the system. And deportation partnership or sponsorship. So it, it was crazy, and I think it's so related with Natalie was mentioned before the narrative behind the migrant as a threat that is super connected with the events in two thousand and one and how the securitization start to develop more and more that is connected again with the lobbies that are under the business and the industry of surveillance that is the same story with the war machine of uh, weapons and all that surrounds that uh, the, the machinery that is behind the, the huge business, the, the amount of money that is moving around. So I, I can see the same connection that somebody has some interest that this continues the same so the money can still move to like in invest in surveillance and some new technology more expensive when we were talking about the new system of surveillance and we were talking that people is still gonna come i think that the only reality is that the the, the people is gonna try to find new routes that in the end they're gonna be more difficult or dangerous routes so probably we are going to see more deaths even in the Mediterranean or the Balkans or Ebros River in Greece with Turkey or rivers in Croatia with uh, Bosnia. So people is going to still coming, but if the European Union and the border regime is going to make it harder and harder, the, the, the end, the result is going to be on a more precarious uh, situation for people on the move. Yeah, can, to be honest, I... I mean, the like we have people going. We have we have Cubans here. We have people from Haiti, from the Dominican Republic, from Colombia, trying here because they couldn't get to the U.S. There are Syrians. There are I don't know other other countries from Middle East in Mexico trying to get to the U.S. because they couldn't make it here. We have people come back to Turkey from Belarus after being stranded at the border there for several months. Um, and there's an Iraqi family told us a month ago. They will now try because they tried here 10 times. They will now try Libya, fully aware of what that means. Um, people who don't have a choice keep trying. And the only way to stop them is to eventually probably just what already is happening with EU funds at the Turkish Syrian border, just shoot people dead. It's happening already. There were some instances where that happened at the Bulgarian Turkish border also. But I think the rate things are currently developing, this is where we're headed that we are really fortifying ourselves to the point where we are just shooting people dead for trying to come. And uh, that's only going to be possible if, um, if European countries or the European Union as a whole uh, leaves lots of international treaties and changes lots of its own law. And this is already a discourse. The Austrian, current Austrian chancellor, who used to be the interior minister last year, said literally, we have to discuss alternatives to human rights in the context of migration. We are that far where this is on the table 
then maybe maybe human rights are not something that we should have <laughs> like yeah it's it's really it's really frightening and and Sergio made a really important point i think about how this is connected to 2001 and and what happens since then this is all uh happening in the context of the global war on terror which is the the thing that's used uh, the threat of terror is, is the thing that's used in the in the security threat narrative but it's also the laws that were established in the war on terror in Europe that is now used for criminalizing both migrants and people like us. Um, so like I'm, I'm on trial in Greece on anti-terror laws, uh, charges of anti-terror law. So this is all connected and it's really clear it's gonna, basically it's all serves to, as Sergio pointed out, um, just cement the current system and keep the power dynamic, like the power distribution globally as it is. But I mean, there. I think, to be honest, like there is a lot of positive also in this field. I mean, the well, you first, guys, for a start. That's what I was going to say. If if we didn't have the network of PBMN, I don't know if we could have continued as Chosur because uh, this is such a hard job and you are always in a precarious situation, not just because of criminalization and so on, but also because of funding issues, because of you never know, like we, are, we here in Turkey, we have no idea how long are we tolerated in the country because we also do report about Turkish violence. Um, and uh, anyways, it's a, it's a really precarious situation each of us are operating in. And, uh, and I think having this um, cross-border solidarity network is giving a lot of um, motivation, inspiration, also, of course, like concrete stuff like exchange and, and so on. But um, I, I, for me personally, I think that the most important thing is knowing that there are many other people working on the same cause and willing to um, give, give up their they're like we could all be chilling in our EU countries and have a nice life, um, but we are not, and we are not alone in this. And by the way, this is also, I think, the most important job. And we were talking about what can we support people with. Yeah, we can give blankets and food, but the most important thing is uh, basically just treating people as people and be like, I acknowledge that you are a human, <laughs> and I treat you on eye level. And uh, and this is this is the feedback that we always get when 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 we meet new people and so on. They always like, I thought there's humanity in Europe. All of them here in Turkey said that. I, I guess it might be a bit different in the other borders, but like this is the first EU border um, that people usually come through. Um, so they all say after the first pushback, I I thought Europe has human rights, and then this happened, but now you like you show us that there is still humanity in Europe. And, and I think this, basically I see this struggle, all of our cause is just supporting the people who are actually the ones challenging the border regime. Everybody who is crossing the borders, knowing that this violence, this torture, this uh, criminal acts are, are happening, they are really like challenging the, the regime and all we can do is say, okay, we are there in spirit, mostly, I think. This is, this is our most important task to, to be like, hey, you are, you are not alone in this. And, and also, honestly, I mean, it's all a matter of luck where and when you are born. If I would have been born in Austria 80 years ago, I would have been in that position probably. And, 
and it's it can happen to us anytime i can also see now we're going back to negative again but i but i can also see that that uh, this actually breaks europe the European Union and it and uh, can lead to 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 conflict on the continent again, and then maybe eventually we have to go somewhere else and or 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 us people working on this maybe we get persecuted so much that we will have to flee. Um, anybody, any one of us could be in the same position, and I like to think that <laughs> there would then be people who support me too, or at least be like, okay, I I see you and I see you as another human, not as. I don't know, someone whose life is worth nothing. It's super important to, to keep uh, fighting injustice and to keep um, uh, trying to bring some awareness to the public society because at some political level doing advocacy, we can try to make some change in terms of legislation, migration um, policies. But I think this narrative we were talking about, super connected with the terrorist, war on terrorists and the threatening of migration, is permeating to the public uh, imaginary and some people is still thinking that people coming from Afghanistan are Taliban's who wants to make some um, attacks on Europe. I think once we like uh, achieve to start changing this, I, I think that will be the leverage to move the political uh, like uh, side of the of the thing and to bring some changes on this border regime and. Uh, I hope in the next years, decades or centuries to get rid of this border regime. And then as Natalie mentioned, we will talk about how like inhuman was this situation right now. What was uh, no sense situation that we are experiencing right now that at some point is kind of normalizing what is going on after the events in Belarus and Poland that uh, for just a short period, it was breaking news, but then <laughs> the wave just, uh, goes down and disappears from the media and from the like uh, public attention. And how can like people help? Um, who are maybe just listening or watching this? I think there's basically three things people can do. <laughs> One is um, people can just share, <laughs> share what's going on, talk about it, bring it to others, uh, address it, and try to advocate in that way. Um, People can, of course, also become active and do similar things, do the same thing in other areas or join existing projects. I don't know. I personally uh, <laughs> never planned <laughs> to do this. It, like once when you start getting active and when you find some like cause that, that you are passionate about um, and you do one step, I, I think always it will be like so, so it will just everything will fall into place and you will just like I don't know do 20 steps and be like oh how did this happen I don't even know um, and suddenly you're in a position where you actually um, where your voice is heard and and you actually can can influence things even if it's just a little bit but but I think that's the main problem why we are in the situation that we are in in when it comes to many different uh, subjects um, but including this one is that most people don't realize that everybody has the power to influence things. It might not be one person be able to change the world, but um, but the only way to change and improve things is if normal people, like every one of us, uh, decides to do whatever they can. Um, and then, lastly, of course, uh, if uh, people don't have the capacity or 
for other reasons, no availability, then financially support people who are doing this. Unfortunately, that's a really, really, like I said already, really, really important thing, especially, uh, by the way, with the increasing criminalization that leads to um, lots of funds rescinding um, support. Like we had a, a grant uh, that was offered to us and we already finished all the paperwork. It was 40,000 euros, which helps a lot here for us, a lot. Um, and we had from the start told them about the criminal case. <laughs> and then somehow after they made us do all the bureaucracy, they still um, decided to say, oh, sorry, uh, in our policy, actually, we cannot support anybody who is currently being investigated. So we have to rescind the offer. Um, so yeah, basically, we're only funding us through private donations so far. And uh, that's hugely important, even if it's just, I don't know, two euros per month. Um, it makes it makes a huge impact if everybody just decides to do whatever they can. Yeah. And that's a border violence monitoring network online. Yes, the website the website is borderviolence.eu, and uh, we are also on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> Please, uh, like support us financially to keep being there, taking testimonies, or like uh, joining us uh, with your with your energy, with your work to to help, and also in the end to share share all of this to really make it not uh, something normalized to bring uh, to your uh, families to your relatives to your acquaintance what is going on because i think at the point we reach some critical mass then we start having this momentum to really like uh, overcome the situation and to maybe be able to have power to push forward some other different politics so yeah i will say to, to share all what is happening and to realize how wrong it is, I think that will be really the, the, the huge uh, power from the people to make some change. Definitely. I think it's important just how quickly things that look impossible can become inevitable um, if enough people take action. So thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for everything that you do. Good luck. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the description or on our website pvcy.org forward slash order pill. Music courtesy of Sepia.